Hello, welcome to the Web Chatham Report, episode 125. What's going on? How are you? Happy Friday. Happy Veterans Day. I hope you've been well these last three weeks. I don't even know if anybody listens to this anymore. I haven't checked the analytics in like six months, but I don't care. I know at least three of you are listening. That's enough. (laughs) Used to be a ton. Last time I looked, it was like, oh man, but I don't know. Whatever. Uh, Crazy week. Crazy week. It's Friday. I have it off. So that's nice, a day to sort of sit back and absorb the week. Uh, Politics were crazy, Twitter was crazy, crypto was crazy, there's a hurricane coming my way, work was crazy, Jane was crazy, it's been a lot, it's been a lot. Not bad though, just eventful, shall we say. Um, Yeah, where to start? Well, I guess we'll start with politics, the midterms happened, very exciting. Uh, (laughs) My wife is trying to train me to be less of a pessimist. Um, A thing we share in common is that we both are very fixated on how much we handle the disappointment after the fact and managing our emotions versus, you know, it's not a cold-hearted what do we think is going to happen kind of thing. It's like, what do I choose to believe is going to happen so that my emotions can handle this roller coaster? And she has come around to believe that there's no point ruining the months and months in advance of a potentially traumatic event by worrying about it, and you should just be optimistic the whole time. And then when it happens, you can worry about being sad afterwards. And I think there's a lot of merit to that. And I also think there's a lot of merit to just being hopeful. Typically, I go into these things thinking that we're fucked and that I'm pleasantly not surprised. But, you know, uh, I can't say that it's better on net because I spend months thinking we're fucked where she spends months thinking it's fine. And then of course, you know, the outcome, how we feel afterwards entirely depends on whether things are good or bad. So I feel great now because I thought things were not going to go well and they went by my point of view, fantastically well. She was convinced things are going to go great. So she's a little bit disappointed about the places where we had setbacks, particularly North Carolina, where we lost the Supreme court, but I look at North and Sherry Beasley did not become our U.S. senator, so we did not flip a Senate seat. But I look at North Carolina and I see that we added two blue congressmen to the U.S. House of Representatives, which is huge. When we moved here, uh, the split was 10-3 Republican-Democrat on congressional districts, and now it's 7-7. So I think that is a huge accomplishment. And uh, we kept the Republicans from taking a super majority of the state House and state Senate, thus protecting our Democratic governor, Roy Cooper, from having all his bills overridden with veto overrides. So that's great for me. But, you know, she I, I, I had very little hope for our Supreme Court and I kind of figured Sherry was going to lose, but I knew it was going to be close, and I did allow myself a little bit of optimism. I'm very sad about Sherry. Not only is she, she is one of the few Democrats that did worse than her polling, only by a point or so, but still, it was neck and neck with or one point down for her in the polls in the end, and she lost by like two and a half, which is kind of a bummer. She was really great. Emma went and met her a couple weeks ago, brought Jane. We have some photos. It's a really nice time. This is the second, third, <laughs> third, no, second second or third, I'm losing track, of North Carolinian Democratic U.S. Senate candidates I've poured monstrous amount of money into, but I will keep doing it. I don't care. I want one of them to win. We're going to flip that seat someday. You just watch. At the time of the recording of this podcast, the balance of power in both the Senate and the House is uncalled. Looks safe bet we'll lose the House, but just barely, which... Again, once again, I assumed we were going to lose it, and I thought it was going to be pretty bad. So I think it's comically great that we're losing it by only a couple seats, which means Kevin McCarthy is going to have the most miserable job in Washington because he's going to have to keep the lunatics on his far-right fringe in check. And it's just going to be... I mean, compared to what I thought was going to happen, it's going to be hilarious. Now, look, will they still impeach Biden for nothing? Quite possibly. Will they still shut down the government for nothing? Quite possibly, although far less possibly than I thought it was going to be. It's still not good, but it's a lot better than I thought it was going to be. So I feel pretty good right now about that. Uh, Emma 
was not wrong in being hopeful that we can keep the set the house because there's still a chance we might keep the house, which is fucking crazy, but I don't think we're going to. So, you know, she's a little disappointed, but she's actually at this moment still maintaining optimism about the house. So God bless her on that. Um, and then the Senate, of course, you know, I think we're going to take at this point, I think uh, Mark Walker, they will call this afternoon. They might call Cortez Mastro this afternoon or evening and that'll do it. Um, I think just one of them will do it, actually. And then we got the Raphael Warnock, Georgia U.S. Senate runoff against that lunatic Herschel Walker, which I think will be a cakewalk for us, especially if we've already taken control of the Senate. So fingers crossed on that. Obviously, the work needs to be done. I strongly recommend donating to the Warnock campaign if you are a reader of my email. I'm going to start nagging you about this. Longtime readers will recall that two years ago, I incessantly nagged people about donating to Raphael Warnock's runoff senatorial campaign, and we collectively raised $7,000. So, and that's excluding my personal donations. So I will be doing that again. And uh, you should donate. That would be great. Turning to Twitter, it's an unholy mess. Uh, I've been writing about it all week. I took a day off today from writing about it. That is not to say that the last 24 hours haven't been equally batshit insane. Elon Musk is now on Twitter for eight days and he has effectively ruined it. I am fairly convinced at this point that his $30 billion investment will go to zero. I do not think Twitter is going to die because I think he's going to get fired soon. Now, how can he get fired? Well, I've been talking to my friend who worked, used to work in bonds in large, big billion dollar level bonds from banks and $12 billion of Elon Musk's purchase of Twitter is leverage buyout. The banks loaned Twitter, the company money. They, in addition to that, he borrowed personal leveraged money where he borrowed, I don't remember 15 billion or something against his Tesla stock, which is a whole other problem we'll get to later. But at the very least, the company itself has borrowed $12 billion in order to buy itself, for him to buy it. And when you do that, you have bond covenants, and these covenants, uh, you know, mandate certain financial performance levels. Now, these covenants were made in March, before the stock market fall, and then before the first tranche of Elon's fucking up Twitter financially. We'll get to that in a moment. As far as anybody can tell, and this is not 100% sure, those bond commitments were not revised in October when the deal closed. Maybe they were, but no one's mentioned it. And these are publicly traded companies that have to do that. So that's a little bit unclear what's going on with the bonds. They haven't floated the bonds on the market. Um, they have. There are reports that they have done this quietly behind the scenes initial like soft conversations and people are offering 50 60 cents in the dollar which means twitter's value is effectively halved so far i think that will get worse and i don't think they would be able to sell 12 billion dollars of bonds at 50 cents in the dollar right now i think before too long if he keeps fucking up they probably have the right to take the company over and i think they will now a lot of this sounds paranoid but i am saying all this based on elon's own statements that he thinks the company's going to go bankrupt soon if he doesn't do drastic things and that he just sold another four billion dollars of tesla stock to keep it in business for a while i'm taking that i'm taking his word at that he might be bullshitting but let's take his word at it uh, there's a reason to believe that's true because because of his lawsuit to avoid buying Twitter, he fucked up their upfronts. So the upfronts were this summer, which is the period where a company, a bunch of companies go and they pitch to advertisers what they are and why you should buy ads with them next year. And big companies commit to a certain level of advertising spending on your platform for the next year. Twitter usually sells in the billions in their upfronts. And this year they didn't even sell 200 million. It was a complete bust because... They did the upfronts when nobody knew if he was going to buy the company or not. They had to keep running the company as if he wasn't going to buy it. And so they did the upfronts and then people just started asking, well, what happens if he buys it? And they're like, uh, we don't know. And they literally just shut their upfront presentation down and walked out. Now, I had heard about that, but I did not hear that in the end they didn't sell anything. So mind you, Twitter was already in kind of bad financial trouble before he bought it. It was already losing about a billion dollars a year since uh last year it did okay it, previously it was profitable occasionally but you know i think a combination between covid ending quote unquote ending it's not over uh 
Apple changes that we've talked about before and the broad economy, it just wasn't doing as well. And, you know, fear of Elon Musk, it wasn't doing as well already. It was losing a billion dollars. They probably lost another billion in revenue by fucking up their upfronts. Then he got there and he fucked it up even more by posting paranoid conspiracy theories about Paul Pelosi and just being a general idiot. And so I think they're probably two and a half to three billion in the hole. Then there's a billion dollars of bond debt service they have to pay every year. So that puts them four and a half billion dollars in the hole or three and a half billion dollars in the hole. They had six billion dollars in the bank before the deal was closed. But that money seems to be gone based on what he's saying. And my conversations with my friend is typically that goes to the bond as part of the payment which is a little confusing because that means they're paying $1 billion debt service on $6 billion of bonds versus 12. And that seems a little high. So we're not really sure what's going on there, but he's telling us the company's losing $4 million a day, which works out to a billion dollars of debt service, which he's also stated. And there's now a two and a half billion dollar, three and a half billion dollar hole in their P and L. And okay. Then he cut half the employees. Great. Good for him. So he maybe saved a half billion dollars. So he's now losing three and a half billion dollars. A year, which explains why he put a billion in or four billion in. He probably gave himself a year. He now has a year's runway, which is actually shockingly responsible of him. But uh, he, all that being said, he has no real plan to fix the company. He's wrong and fucked up and dumb about what he's doing because he's ruining the advertising revenue, even as he clearly wants to fix it. He did a Q&A with the advertisers. He went to Madison Alley to grovel and he wrote that sycophantic letter to them. He thinks he's trying to get the advertisers back, but he's not listening to them and he's stupid about advertising. So they're still not coming back. And even if they were, the upfronts were fucked and the economy's fucked and Twitter's never that good to advertise on anyway. So he's not wrong in saying that he, because he's an idiot and he cannot do advertising, has to do something else. The correct interpretation is that of that problem is to say, I need to find someone who can do advertising. I'll go be CEO of Twitter if you want me to, but uh, he is unable to do it. So he, if he's not going to quit the company, has to do what he thinks he's what he thinks he's doing, which is raise money in some other way. Hence, Twitter blew with the eight dollars a month. And he even says outright that I have to do this because we're going to go out of business. This is how much we're spending a day, blah, blah, blah. This math is math that he has given us. This isn't math from like muckraking reporting, right? This is like his word on the thing. But the thing is, is Twitter blue won't work. It doesn't matter. He could get 10 million people to sign up, which he won't. And even if he did, it's not enough money to close a three and a half billion dollar gap. And all of this is just to keep the company in business. Never mind, justify a $44 billion valuation. Do all of this hit out of the park. 10 million people sign up for $8 a month. And you now have a company worth one third what you paid for it. Good on you. But it's worse than that because he calls it payment verified and he says what we're going for here is to have the name contact and payment info of our customers but he only launched this thing on ios on apple in the apple app store and you don't get those things from apple when people sign up for a subscription on apple you don't need to use a real email address i mean you have to use a real email address with Apple, but you can not share that email address with the buyer or with the seller of the subscription. You can, Apple has a very robust, well-built anonymization system and Apple does not give you the credit card information. They keep that and they just send you the money. On top of both of those, they take a 30% cut. On top of that, they are very, very strict about things like Nazis and shit like that. Like there has been a long time exemption for Twitter from the rules on the App Store. Twitter has been allowed historically to do things that Tumblr, for example, was not. You want to put a picture of a man coming all over a girl's boobs? You can do that on Twitter. You cannot do that in Tumblr. It is rank hypocrisy, which has annoyed me a lot. But that's neither here nor there right now. The point is, how enthusiastic is Apple going to be to continue letting Twitter have this free pass? I would posit not very much which means they're probably going to do something soon. Nobody's talking about this, but like his entire new revenue plan rests on Apple not getting upset about Twitter while the man posts Nazi memes and homophobic bullshit. So that's not going to work. I really don't think he's going to last the end of the year. He might make it to January, but I don't think it's Q1. I think he's probably dead. I think the minute that he launches properly Twitter blue, which is taking much longer than he thought because he's a fucking idiot. And uh, maybe he gets that out by Christmas. Let's be generous. And I think a million people might sign up. Some friends of mine think, you know, there are only 500,000 subscribers to the old Twitter blue. I was one of them. I canceled. Obviously I'm never giving that man another penny of my money. 
But so they're like, I don't think he'll get even a million. I think he could get a few million. He has a lot of fanboys, right? Like, just let's do raw numbers. He's got 100 million followers on Twitter. Let's say a third of them or half of them are are bots. So there's 50 million really people, real people that just love the fucking dude. Do like a three, four percent conversion rate, which isn't abnormal. You got, you know, two million people like it's not out of the realm of possibility. Two million people is 16 million dollars a month. Which is, you know, I don't know, $100, $200 million a year, right? It's nothing. It's nothing. The guy's fucked. That was quite a rant. But I've been thinking about this so much this week. The other thing I realized in this whole thing is Twitter CPMs are only $4. That is garbage. Here, let me just go to my third monitor and swipe to the left here. Man, this podcast is such good content and no one knows. And I'm never going to write any of this in an actual <laughs> like newspaper or something. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Anyway, my CPMs are like six bucks and my CPMs are six dollars and I don't have a sales staff, right? Like I get six dollars CPMs on open market programmatic. This dude has like a thousand salespeople by all accounts. I can't get confirmation on this, but all the like rumors from the journalists in the know, like Casey Newton and stuff are that he mostly spared the sales org because he needs revenue. So by all accounts, that org is still intact. A rough calculation is it's costing them low to mid nine figures a year to pay them like two to three hundred million dollars a year, I'm figuring. And uh, that entire sales staff generates a CPM lower than mine. I do with robots, right? I really think if that man had half a brain, he would fire his entire sales staff and just tire my company to monetize it. <laughs> I think I could do a better job, but uh, I don't really think I want that heat. You know? <laughs> I just think it's funny. It's really funny. So, you know, if he was smart enough to do that, he might be able to save the company because he would radically reduce payroll while incrementally increasing revenue. Um, uh, some of his CPMs are probably higher than that from the, the, you know, the big brands, Disney, Ford, shit like that. None of them are advertising right now, so that's kind of a moot point. And obviously it would have a ma major impact on the UX because, you know, TimeHop is designed to handle open market programmatic ads in a relatively nice looking way. Twitter is not. They don't have time to redesign the app, so it, they look kind of bad. But only in the short term, and I think if somebody else came in and they were a good human being and they're like, this is how we save Twitter. It's the least painful way for you. I think people would put up with it. I, I do. We don't have a lot of problem with our ads, you know, here and there assholes try and sneak political ads in and stuff like that. But like, you know, 200 apps use this service at this point and it works. And the volume that we deliver to the rest of these clients is larger than the volume that Twitter does as far as I can tell. So anyway, that's my Twitter rant. If I were the banks, I'd fire Elon Musk right now. If I could, uh, I don't know if they actually have that ability. Like, it's unclear to me what happens when the warrants are triggered. Can they foreclose on the company? Can they kick out the CEO? Unclear. I just don't know. But if they could, they should do it now. There's no point waiting any longer. You can save it at this moment. It's unclear if you can save it by, let's say, after Christmas when everyone you just laid off. Most of the people you laid off, you couldn't hire back immediately because he's fucked the company so much. But there's probably two or three hundred you desperately need, right? Uh, Yoel, the guy that just left, who was head of trust and safety, you definitely need him back. But what he had said before is that the trust and safety team was still functioning at their new level, right? There's obviously a few dozen, maybe a hundred people you need in ops, tech ops, to keep the site up and running. That's a huge problem. The lawyers and privacy people that all just quit because he, Elon Musk is breaking the laws left and right, they need to come back and so do some of their departments. I estimate a couple hundred people you need to put back on the payroll, but as radically offset by the, this is horrible to say, but the layoffs you could do to the sales staff as you move to open market programmatic. Oh my God. This is like the confluence of so many different things that I've been passionate about for like 10 years. Maybe you're not even passionate, but like aware of researching, living, and uh, I can't turn away. So you're probably bored. I apologize. We're going to move on to Sam Bankman Freed and FTX. <laughs> I'm, this is going to be the longest episode of this podcast I've ever done. I swear to God. I only have an hour till lunch. Don't worry. Uh, I won't talk about this one too much, but I am somewhat shocked as a to recap for those that don't know. 
Sam Bankman-Fried, a young MIT wonderkind who is considered the J. Pierpont Morgan in a good way of the crypto world that had just saved from dying like four or five giant crypto companies. He's worth $30, $40 billion and runs an exchange called FTX, uh, which had aspirations to be the crypto bank of the world. Well, it all imploded and the dude lost $30 billion in a week, which is pretty impressive that somebody in the same week beat what I calculate being uh, Elon Musk losing $30 billion. This guy lost, almost certainly lost more, and it's definitively lost, whereas I can see the writing on wall with Elon's loss, but the jury's still out. Uh, So FTX... Uh, you know, they kind of are two companies. The U.S. company follows U.S. laws and it's a lot more robust and regulated. It has not gone out of business yet. And then there's FTX and the rest of the world. It's gone. It filed for bankruptcy about a half hour before I started this podcast. It's over on that. His uh, home office trading company, Alameda Research, is gone. That was another $30 billion gone. He still technically owns some stuff. He still owns half of US FTX, which was valued at $8 billion not too long ago. But the, Dan Primack and everybody else thinks the writing's on the wall for US FTX and it's going out of business. He still owns 7.9% of Coinbase. I did a rough calculation on that. That's about a billion dollars. There's probably a couple other assets he has that aren't uh, crypto related because he's tanking the whole crypto market with him right now as this goes. Everything's down. It's hilarious. And it was already pretty shitty, right? Like this is the worst thing that's happened to crypto ever. And that's happened like four times in the last decade, but this is the, this is the real worst one. And it's all one dude and it's all hubris and it's just astonishing. It's just astonishing. And it's also a bit of a bummer because the dude gave $30 million to Democrats in this last election cycle. So that's gone for the presidential. Let's think about that. Uh, but yeah, that's a train wreck that's happening. Um, you know, I had a little bit of money in crypto, not much. It could go to zero. I wouldn't really care. Um, but a lot of people, it's really stunning. You know, they're like, you read his, he posted this May culpa Twitter thread about how he fucked up. It wasn't hundred percent true, but it was pretty good. At least he took full responsibility and said, sorry. And that his main focus was getting people their money back. But so what, man, he totally committed fraud and, you read the comments and people were like, I had my entire life savings in your, in your exchange. These people like, it's so fascinating. You, me, we all know banks are banks and they're insured by the FDIC and you put your money in something else. It could go bad and maybe you shouldn't do that. And maybe you definitely shouldn't run a VPN and give your money to an unregulated offshore bank, especially all of it. But people do it. It's astonishing. I mean, millions of people are wiped out by this, this event. I mean, I, you know, part of me is like, oh, you idiots, what did you expect? You know, you're all like anti-government and don't need this and don't need that. And this is what happens, a lesson learned. And to some extent, I believe that. But also, like, I have empathy. Like, so many people, you read the responses and you're just like, oh, my God, these people are fucked. It is sad. And, you know, I mean, theoretically, Americans are better protected as of right now because of the better regulations. But it's still not FDIC insured. And it's probably still not one-to-one. And, you know, I mean, if you're an American, then you ran a VPN to like put your money offshore. It's on you, I guess. But like, I still think FTX US is probably going down. And that's just that's crazy. Also, just for what it's worth, people that aren't Americans, they matter, too. And it totally fucking sucks to be them right now. Yeah, that was a lot of rants. Otherwhere in my life, things have been good. I'm very sad I missed the legendary pink dots. They came to Cat's Cradle on Sunday, and I forgot to go, and I'm totally bummed. Uh, I used to be sort of acquaintances with Edward Cospell from the band, and um, he is well known for having a prodigious memory for meeting people. So though I haven't chatted with him in over 20 years, over 30 years, I was really looking forward to it because it was at the back room of Cat's Cradle, which means it would only have like 100 people tops if it was sold out and it didn't seem to be. And I could chat with him again and I bet he'd remember me and I'm really sad. So that's a bummer. And this is the second time they've come to Chapel Hill since I've lived here and I do not anticipate they're going to keep doing that. So that's a bummer. Uh, it was Jane's birthday last two weeks ago, and it was super fun, and it was Halloween, and we had a birthday party for her, and a bunch of kids came over, and they all did crafting, and I saw a bunch of old friends. I saw Nora, an old barbarian. I saw uh, Christine, one of Emma's bridesmaids, and her, her husband Tom was briefly there, and Nora's husband was there, and... 
it was great. It was a good time. Uh, the neighbors, uh, our old babysitter. Uh, it was fun. It was great. And all the kids dressed up and it was super cute. And they had a great time. And then on Monday, Jane went Halloween trick-or-treating in the neighborhood next door. And it was super cute. She dressed up as a witch Hello Kitty. And she got a bunch of candy. And she did the early shift because she's only five. And we got home and then it totally rained and poured and all the teenagers that were out doing their trick-or-treating shenanigans all got rained on, which made me laugh. The week before, we did a Halloween party in Raleigh at our friend Jesse's house. It was an adult party. It was at night. Kids were welcome. We brought Jane. But it was super fun. And I hung out with a bunch of adults I didn't know at a party and in town at a house. And their house is really nice. They bought it as like a hoarder fixer-upper. And they fixed it up really well. And the backyard's amazing. And Jesse made this haunted trail. And I talked to a lot of interesting people. And it was a great time. And I really miss that. <laughs> I mean, the last time I went to a party and met a bunch of people and drank at night, it was crazy. It was crazy. It was like it was the 90s or something. Super fun. Super fun. So that's been what's been going on in my life for the last few weeks. A lot of birthday and Halloween stuff. That went on for quite a while, not going to lie. Uh, I just got a took delivery of one of those husky wheeled workbenches with a ton of drawers that you see in like automotive garages. But I got a nice one with a wood top in black and it's in my office now and it's beautiful and I really love it. I'm going to work on that this weekend. Uh, I got a, bought a bunch of Milwaukee pack out for the garage and I'm reorganizing the garage tonight after this pet podcast. That's going to be super fun. Um, doing a bunch of gardening. The gardening's going well. I, I got so much baby bok choy, like 50 plants. I've been giving it to all the neighbors. Six neighbors took bok choy. They're all very excited. Janet, my mother-in-law, she's getting a bunch of bok choy. Uh, the peppers, I have like six, seven good bell peppers still growing. It's supposed to frost tomorrow night, and I, I got some frost blankets, so I'm going to cover them up. And I'm just trying to, like, the, the peppers and the loofah, I got like 10 loofahs, and I just need them all to get a little bit bigger so I can have these loofah sponges that I'm going to sell to Good Morning, Hello, How Are You, readers. That's going to rule. And uh, I'm really just trying to get them as big as possible, and these peppers are for Janet. And I, you know, I got her a good one last week, but like I have so many good peppers, and it's getting, the season is just ending, and I need to get them off these vines, but they're still not quite big enough, and it's so close. It's got to be so close. But on the winter stuff, the lettuce is going great. The spinach, I think my seeds are bad. I just didn't even, a lot of it didn't even sprout, which is kind of a bummer. The beets are doing really good and the carrots are doing really good. I should have really good beets and carrots for Thanksgiving dinner. I'm very excited about that. The potatoes are doing really well. That should be good for Thanksgiving dinner. Uh, now that I'm a gardener, Thanksgiving is so perfectly timed. It's like this abundance of fall vegetables harvest meal, and I fucking love it. I like, I Hopefully, I think I can pull it off that almost all the vegetables we eat at Thanksgiving are garden-grown. The corn didn't work. It came close. I almost had good corn, and I, I fucked up and I messed up the watering the last vital two, three weeks, and that really did it in. And I had to keep it on the vine one or two weeks too long because of that last hurricane. So it was a little bad at the end, but I think everything worked well, and I'm going to try it again soon. But the, the rest of the fall winter stuff is going great. The lettuce is going great. The, the snow peas are amazing looking. The garlic, I got two big birdies beds with like 100 cloves of garlic. That's all going great. Very excited about that. I planted some wheat, winter wheat. It's going to grow all winter. I'm going to try and make my own flour in the spring. That'll be fun. If I can get like one small piece of bread out of my garden, I'm going to be so excited. And then I'll spend time trying to convince Emma to turn our garden into wheat. Uh, and then I bought a bunch of organizing bins for the seeds and it's so great. They're plastic, which sucks, but they're going to last forever. And me and Jane, like brought out the label maker and we labeled them all and like put them into these individual organizers and it's amazing. And it was deeply satisfying. I've been on a big organization kick lately. Let me tell you. And then Jane herself, she's doing well. She had, she had a rough day yesterday. She had a meltdown and she had a meltdown for, for me at breakfast yesterday for about an hour. And the day before she had a meltdown for Emma for about an hour and she doesn't want to pee anymore. And so she peed her pants yesterday, but, uh, this all seems transitory and by and large, she's doing better and better and happier and happier. And we have better conversations and I just fucking love her so much. And it's so fun right now and she's doing great. And, uh, it's daddy bedtime tonight. So I'm very excited. That'll be fun. And yeah, I mean, she's good. She can like, let's see, what are we, what are we working on these days? We're working on the concept of metaphor, uh, of Liberty. Um, 
she got these Junie P. Jones books and she reads them and she's reading a lot of books uh, like second, third grade level Janet figures. Janet used to be an elementary school teacher. Uh, close to, she thinks third or maybe even fourth, which is just crazy. She just turned five. She won't hit kindergarten for another year. She's not so great at math though. So that's a thing. Uh, she's very into lists. I taught her about lists and I bought her these post-it notepads and she writes out lists. She's still doing a lot of drawing. Doesn't really care about music very much. Um, still very into parkour, jumping and flips and stuff like that. I'm working on teaching her hand headstands, handstands right now. Um, but you know, like she hasn't really learned the stillness balance yet. She's much more manic. She likes running around, just dive jumping off of things and landing in flips, like literal parkour star style. It's crazy. Uh, yeah, she's good. She's fun. I like my daughter. I'm really into it. <laughs> All right, let's move on to the media. There's a lot. There's a lot. Three weeks is a lot. Uh, I say this every time now, don't I? I really should go back to every two weeks. Uh, I only I did a big resell again on eBay, and I forgot to put it into my list here. So that's just uh, my.ebay.com selling sold. All right, so I have sold, and then let's check your last podcast notes real quick. Oh, okay. I, I, I listed most of those. So this, I've sold Oblivion, Top Gun, Maverick, uh, Roma, the Fellini film, Thor, Love and Thunder. And I think that's it. Cause the next one I've sold in the list here is Dennis Hopper's the last movie. And that I mentioned last week. So I sold four or five more Blu-rays, ripped them all in Plex. I have added uh, Santa Sangra, the Yodorovsky film in 4K, it's amazing, and the making of and the scenes are amazing. So if you're a Yodorovsky fan, the new 4K restoration print of Santa Sangra is amazing. Uh, Top Gun Maverick is up there in 4K with a lot of making of documentaries. Haven't watched them yet, but they look pretty interesting. Uh, today, The Big Chill is going up in HD, a better copy. Seven is going up in HD. The David Fincher film HD copy, as opposed to like the kind of shitty SD copy I had up there. And Electric Dreams, the 80s synth -y movie, is up there in HD now as well. The one where the song Together in Electric Dreams by Phil Oakey of the Human League and Giorgio Moroder. We can be together, together in electric dreams. It's from that movie. So, all those are up in Plex at your leisure. You don't have my Plex login? Drop a line. Let me know. I'll hook you up. There's some good stuff. Uh, Discogs. Only sold two things in Discogs. Sold a copy of Porridge Radio's LP, Water Slide, Diving Board, and Ladder to the Sky. It was a vinyl copy, accidentally bought two. Uh, and I sold a sort of run-of-the-mill generic 90s US promo copy of Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, The Good Son, uh, which I have in vinyl. So that was a CD, and Porridge Radio was vinyl. Uh, I went to see Stereolab four weeks ago. I forgot to mention it in the last podcast, but it was great. Emma and I went. It was super fun. Cat's Cradle. Very crowded, stood in the back, uh, wore masks, stayed near the door. The CO2 levels stayed low. We brought our monitor. We did not get COVID. Thank you, us. We also didn't get COVID at that party. Yay, us. Uh, it was a great show. I hadn't seen Stereolab in 20 years. I used to see them all the time. I saw like their first six tours to America, and then I just kind of stopped. And I was kind of like this obnoxious drunk in the back that would always yell out for Super Electric, a song off their first album. And... Uh, Hilariously, they seem to have uh, absorbed that, and or I wasn't the only one because they ended the big finale, not the encore, but the main set with Super Electric, and it made me so happy. And I, it's interesting. I felt the exact same way about a Stereolab show I felt 20 or 30 years ago, which is that I love the drone Krautrock Stereolab songs live, and I don't really care for the lounge ones live. I love the lounge ones on vinyl or on, on recorded music, but uh, live, I just want I want the fast drones. I want Jenny Ondialine and Super Electric, and if you just played those two, I would consider that a great Stereolab set. <laughs> but it was awesome to see them again. They're still great. It made me really happy. Vinyl, a lot of vinyl. Taylor Swift Midnights. I got two copies. I got the blue and the green editions. Uh, they had the, 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 what do they call it? Brown. I can't remember. They had some pretty name for brown. They had that today at Walmart, actually. Almost about a third. But I didn't like the album at all when I first listened to it. Uh, did I talk about this last week? I could talk about Taylor Swift forever. And I've gone on a lot of different rambles already. So I will avoid this if I can. Do, 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 disguise. Mm, yeah, okay. It was the last thing listed. So I did talk about it. So... It has grown on me since uh, probably I last talked to you about it. Uh, there's some really great songs on there. I just hate the production. I just wish she wouldn't work with Jack Antonoff. 
And then she rubbed it in by putting out a Bleacher's version of Antihero a couple days ago where he actually sings a verse. And that just made me even more upset. And he's mean in his verse, which I did not like. I don't like it when he, people are mean. <laughs> but uh, I love I love a lot of the songs on it now. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> she, she, she won me over. I'm in the wait list for tickets to a bunch of shows. We'll see if that works out. She's not coming to North Carolina, so that's a bummer. I picked the Boston shows, figured we could see some friends. Emma's unconvinced. Maybe it won't happen. We'll see. We'll see. Uh, Alaska Tapes, uh, ambient act. Nothing to do with Alaska, but a great ambient album called Views from 16 Stories. Really, really liked it. Catherine Moore, Catherine with a Y, Moore, M-O-H-R, album called Holly. Really good. Uh, Singer-songwriter kind of thing. Very, very into it. The Stargazer Lilies, I've talked about them before. Cosmic Tidal Wave, uh, their new album. They are a noisy shoegaze band, and I fucking love them. They're great. Carly Rae Jepsen, listen to her new album, The Loneliest Time. It's good. Some people say it's better than the Taylor Swift album. I don't think that's true. I don't think it's her strongest work, but it's really good, and I really like it. Uh, new Suede album, The London Suede, called Auto Fiction, and it's awesome. If you ever liked Suede, the new album's as good as anything they ever did. It, a lot of my hardcore Suede fans are calling it their first or second best album ever, so it's good, man. It's worth a listen, even if you're not a Suede fan. I really enjoyed it. Tindersticks have a soundtrack called Stars at Noon to a movie called Stars at Noon, and it was mostly mellow classical, but it's enjoyable. I gotta, I gotta do a little sniffle here, one second. All right, allergies really catching up to me. I, uh, I filled in for a class at the Miami Ad School last night, did a lecture to some students, and same thing, I was Zooming, I was like, I'm sorry, I gotta stop, I gotta cough and sneeze, and <laughs> it's just, it's just the last, like, 24 hours, it's gotten really bad. Anyway, uh, where was I? I was, did Taylor Swift? Oh, I messed up. I moved on to albums and I was doing vinyl. So let's go back to albums. Taylor Swift got that on Blue and Green Editions. Got Nitzer Ebb's Belief. Nitzer Ebb, industrial band from the 90s and 80s. Belief is their second album. It's by far my favorite. Owned it on CD since I was a kid. It got a vinyl copy. Really nice copy, too, and very affordable. Kind of a stroke of luck. The watch list on Discogs really works, man. Uh, and it sounds awesome. And I've been very happy with that. And from that same seller, I got the Ice Blink Luck 12 inch single from the Cocteau Twins. Also pretty affordable. That guy underpriced this stuff. Uh, that one's a little, uh, maybe very good, very good plus on the sleeve. So, you know, more reasonably priced. But uh, has all the B-sides I really love, like Dials specifically, which I hadn't heard in 20 years. So that was really nice. Uh, I got the new reissue of Tom Waits' album Alice on double blue vinyl. Had the CD back in the day, never owned it on vinyl, bought the reissue. Uh, one of the discs, the second LP was messed up, and so I emailed them. They're like, it's cool, we'll send you a new one, you don't need to send it back. And they're so nice, although it hasn't shown up, it's been two weeks, so I don't know. But uh, I haven't listened to Alice in a long time, it's a great record. Man, I wish you could see Tom Waits live one more time. God, I wish you would just, ugh, I know he's old, it's not going to happen, but he was so good live. Uh, Peter Murphy, Love Hysteria, uh, second solo album from Peter Murphy, the one with Indigo Eyes and... It's a great record. I love it. And uh, Peter Murphy's late period sort of alcohol and drug problems and not such great records have not dimmed older Peter Murphy for me. And actually, I will stick up for a couple of the late period solo albums. I'm not going to lie. Still so sad that the Reunion Bauhaus tour got canceled. By the way, though, we'll talk about this in a few months when they come out. Uh, Beggars Archive, archive.beggars.com, is reissuing all the Love and Rockets, Bauhaus, and Peter Murphy albums on vinyl. So I have, you know, 80% of that stuff on vinyl, but there are a couple I don't have. And the vinyl's original pressings are getting very expensive. So these are affordable. So if you want any of those on vinyl, now's the time. Pre-orders for all of them on uh, Beggars Archive. Godflesh, Slave State, first Godflesh album I ever owned or listened to. It's kind of dubby, uh, grindcore noise, but also dub. And I love it, and I just think it's been a great album. I bought it when I was like 18 years old. I've had the singles from it on vinyl ever since, but my, my copy of Slave State was on CD. And so I finally got a nice vinyl copy. Again, pretty affordable because uh, they're not very popular. Although J.K. Broderick is well-respected. Anyway, it's great. Um one of the couple albums I did pay a lot of money for. Whoo boy. Rainy Day. Uh, Rainy Day was a Paisley underground supergroup consisting of members of The Bangles and Rain Parade uh, and some others. Uh, Dave Roback is sort of the ringleader of the whole thing, uh, who, after all of this, is best known as the dude in Mazzy Star. Uh, I love Rainy Day. I've loved them forever. I had this, all the singles from the album, and I thought I owned the album. And my friend Catherine mentioned it, that she saw a really nice copy at a record store in Atlanta, where she lives in Alabama. 
And we started talking about it. And I was like, you know, I looked on Discogs at different releases. I was like, I wonder which one mine is. And I went and looked on the record shelf and there wasn't there. And I suddenly felt just bereft that I did not own this Rainy Day album. So I found a good copy online. Might have even been the one she was mentioning, honestly. <laughs> and I bought it and I listened to it. And it's great. And I haven't heard the album. I've owned it forever. The, the files. I, but I thought I owned the vinyl. Maybe I owned the CD and sold it. I don't know. It's not in my collection on Discogs. The seven inches and the singles all were, but anyway, I spent I spent like some coin on that one. It was like eighty bucks, uh, and also expensive was the Dead Can Dance. This bothered me a lot. I mentioned I got a copy of one of the Dead Can Dance albums recently, and I was logging it to Discogs, and I realized I own every Dead Can Dance album on vinyl original. 480 pressing except for one and i was just like fuck it i'm gonna buy it and so i bought the best copy on discogs it was like 100 bucks it was, it was bad don't tell my wife but it's awesome it's a great record uh toward the within the live album in la almost got to see that show i was there like the week after it kind of sucks but um i saw that tour at least and uh yeah it's amazing uh anais nin the author I wouldn't call her not my favorite author. I don't like her fiction, but I she's a she's a diarist, as you know, the Diary of Anna Eastman, uh, a graphomania, I would say, graphomaniac, someone that feels compelled to write every day about their innermost experiences in life. Uh, maybe sort of like uh, Nausgaard in my struggle, and you know myself, I am a relentless journaler. I was a relentless journaler before I discovered Anna Eastman in 1991, and I have been ever since. I have what is probably the largest collection of Anna Yusnin books in private hands in America that isn't owned by somebody that knew her. I have significant number of Gunther Stallman's copies of her books, uh, her editor. I have a copy of her entire unexpurgated journal that she personally Xeroxed the handwritten copies and gave them to Gunther and they have both of their handwritten notes in it. It is one of a kind. I have a letter from Anais Nin on my wall right there that she wrote to her childhood friend, Tana de Gamas. And it is rare because it's one of the letters she wrote in her transcontinental period when she was a bigamist and had a husband in each coast and nobody knew about them except for very few people. And her childhood friend, Tana de Gamas is one of the people that knew about both of them. And the letter mentions both of them. I've owned that for 20 years. I'm obsessed. Somewhere in this world, there is an individual that is bootlegging Anais Nin's spoken word work with uh, Louis and Bebe Baron, two well-regarded, famous early pioneers of electronic music. Now, I can only assume, because there are no other equivalent Anais Nin bootlegs out there, that the people that are doing these bootlegs are electronic music fans. And they want this to do with their DJ sets and things like that. It's unclear who makes them. And they, they did a pressing in 2015, which is the copy I got. And they just did a pressing two years ago in 2020 as well. And I don't know anything about who does it. There's nothing on the sleeve or anything like that. There are other vinyl releases that Anna Eastman has done. Readings of her diaries, readings from you know bookstores, things like that. I have all those already. But this one I never had. And a copy came for sale. It's hard for, for Discogs to sell these because they are bootlegs. It doesn't seem like Discogs realizes that. So this one got through because Discogs does not sell bootlegs. I desperately want to know who makes these. I'm desperately, desperately curious. So got that. John Bryan reissued his first album called Meaningless. John Bryan is best known for two things. One is a soundtrack composer, uh, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, Magnolia. Um, great soundtracks, but he did start get his start as a pop rock singer-songwriter kind of guy, and the album's great. And the other thing he's known for is that he's been doing a residency in Los Angeles at the Corona Theater for uh, years and years, maybe a decade. I don't actually know how long. And I don't know if I made it through the pandemic. I need to look that up. But a couple of years ago, maybe four or five years ago, uh, I was in L.A. for a wedding and my friend Harry knew about this. I didn't even know who John Bryan was at this point. And he was like, we should all go the night before the wedding. So I went and it was amazing. And he, did, he mainly does covers and different stuff every night. And he did this version of Waterloo Sunset by the Kinks that's been in my head ever since. And I just, you know, these things are not recorded. They're one-offs. It's a really magical event. And I really want to go again. And uh, anyway, I I just think he's awesome, even though, like, none of that stuff is recorded. I got to see if it still goes on. Also, connection between Anais Nin and the Corona Theater and John Bryan is Anais Nin did a lot, a lot of her happenings uh with Kenneth Anger parties in LA, famous parties around the Bells of Atlantis and stuff like that. Uh, inauguration of the Pleasure Dome, Kenneth Anger film, Corona Theater. So the more you know. 
My God, I'm still just in the vinyl. Uh, PJ Harvey put out a six LP box set of all her demos, B-sides and rarities. And I bought the vinyl version and it is gorgeous and fantastic. And I'm so excited. And it's great. Uh, Les Relise de Nude, the Japanese psych rock band, is finally properly issuing their albums and recordings. They have been bootlegged forever. There's random stuff. I've talked about them before on Spotify and stuff. It comes in and out. It's all bootlegged, but they are finally doing it properly. And the Oz Tates have finally gotten an official issue. And I bought a copy, and it's great. Uh, strong recommend. So that is all the vinyl I got in the last three weeks. Now we'll do the albums. We're going to do this fast. Ready to Taylor Swift, Alaska Tapes. Catherine Moore, Stargazer, Lilies, Carly Rae Jepsen, Suede, Tindersticks. All right. Then I listened to Here It Is, a tribute to Leonard Cohen, B+. But the Iggy Pop version of You Want It Darker on there is stellar. Strong recommend. Daniel Lanois, most notably known as the producer of The Joshua Tree by U2, but a fantastic musician in his own right. Got to see him at the Paradise once in the 90s in Boston. Has a new album out called Player Piano. It is piano based songs and it is great strong recommend the morelings same century shoegaze album you know i do these shoegaze play i do playlists on my good morning hello how are you email i do a playlist every day one in ten or so is a shoegaze playlist and every time i'm doing it spotify has all these new shoegaze recommendations at the bottom of your playlist and my god i swear to god every time it's like five new shoegaze bands i haven't heard of so then I listen to those and then they go on the next playlist and I just, I'm convinced someday I'm going to hit the bottom of it after like hundreds and hundreds of shoegaze bands, but it never ends. There's just more good shoegaze constantly. So these guys are good. Uh, it was kind of boring, this one. It wasn't, it was a pretty derivative, uh, not my favorite, but they're good because I love shoegaze. But the next one, Orange, Yellow, Red is the name of the band, A Rose Made of Galaxies. That one was great. Uh, there's a song on there called All the Hopes that was just awesome. So that one was, that one was good. And then I think... Let's see. The best one was probably Visiting Diplomats. They have an EP called Big Swell. That one was really awesome, as was 93 Million Miles from the Sun, all one word. And their shoegaze album is very appropriately called Echo Delay Fuzz Reverb. <laughs> that one's pretty droney, more of the Spaceman 3 kind of thing, which for me, you know, it's right up my alley. So those are all the new shoegaze from that go round. Uh, Lucretia Dalt. The album is called I. Uh, it's awesome. I learned about this from Damon Krukowski, drummer of Galaxy 500. Uh, his daily email, not daily, his email list. He said it was a fantastic album, and it really is. It's like mellow. It's world-influenced. It's really good. Strong recommend there. And he said it reminded him of an album from the 70s by Nelson Angelo and Joyce Moreno. And so I listened to that. The album is called Nelson Angelo E. Joyce. And uh, it's folkier, and it's definitely, I can see the, the, the through line between the two. And I did enjoy it, but not as much as uh, Lucretia Dalt. She was great. Alice Bowman, The Space Between. Uh, there was a song with Perfume Genius she did, and so I checked that out, and it's great. Very mellow, very mellow. The Perfume Genius song is definitely the strongest one. Fin del Mundo, La Cuidad Que Dejamos. Man, I do not speak Spanish. Uh, Argentinian shoegaze, learned about them from KEXP. I really liked it. Obviously, Fin del Mundo means end of the world. So that was really good. It's in Spanish. Uh, Anne Brun, A-N-E-B-R-U-N. This is a woman. She's Scandinavian. I think Swedish. She's been around forever. My sister sent me a link to one of her songs, and I listened to it, and I listened to the rest of the album. The album is called Rarities. So it's a, it's a, you know, it's a wide-ranging collection from folk to electronica to synth over 20 years. But it's great, and it's a great way to like sort of get into this woman that I'm not really into because I haven't. I'm going to do a dive into all our albums. I haven't done that yet, but I've been listening to songs since then. Uh, but beautiful record all around, a lot of covers, and uh, it was really good. Coincidentally, during my Sting obsession of the last three or month or two, Sting has reissued Nothing Like the Sun as an expanded edition with an entire bonus disc of like 15 songs. So I listened to that. It's skippable. I wouldn't bother. <laughs> he really picked the right songs for the album. There's some mixes and versions that are okay, but you know, a, lot, a lot of filler. Uh, Babe Haven, Light Moving Time, Mellow Lady Folk, pretty cool. I liked it. Uh, this, there's a song called Often that is really, really good. Uh, Dear Nora, Human Futures, uh, more lady, lady Mellow Pop, also really good. More poppy than Babe Haven, Babe Hoven, uh, but good. Plans. I walked with you a ways. Pla oh, I'm sorry. This is Planes. That's a typo. Planes, right? Yeah, Planes is the new album band from Waxahachie and Jess Williamson. It's full-on 90s country, lady country, and it's awesome, and I love it. I walked with you a ways is the name of the album from Planes. It's so good. I've been listening to that a lot. I yeah. 
Thus Love, Memorial. Oh my God, Thus Love. They're so good. Vermont, Queer, Shoegaze, Goth, Post-Punk. Fantastic. Album's called Memorial. Uh, I I want to see them live. They're playing near where my friend Doug is. I'm like, Doug, go see Thus Love and tell me how they're... They're, they're so cool. I want to be a kid their age making music like that, man, because people care now. Nice. Anyway, Salt, S-A-U-L-T. I'm not sure if you heard of them. They're this enigmatic, mysterious um, black music ensemble collective unclear from the uk they dropped five new albums at once for free online it was very exciting their last album or actually this makes seven this year so it wasn't even their last album but their album nine they released and then deleted so very klf i'm very into bands that delete their music Anyway, the five albums were Today and Tomorrow, that's the cool one. Earth, that one is pretty cool. Air with two eyes, all caps, that's the classical one. Eleven is the experimental one. And Untitled, parentheses, God is the God one, which is cooler than you would think. God is probably the second coolest one. Experimental one, Air is my third third favorite. Actually, Air is, Eleven's my favorite. Untitled God's my second favorite. Today and Tomorrow is my third favorite. Air is my fourth. Earth is my fifth. But they're all really good, worth listening to. Uh, my friend Todd Demma, who is currently the drummer in the Chameleons UK, used to be the drummer in the Cult, old Boston friend from a band called Missile Thrush. He told me about a Eleven Rockets compilation called Assorted, and what it turned out to be is uh, six, seven years ago, Beggar's Archive once again uh, put out the last CD issue. They were like, "Look, you know, the world's turning streaming." This is the last time we're putting these albums out on CD. So if you want to buy them now, and they put out a CD box set of all the Love and Rockets albums, and it came with a bonus disc called Assorted. Now, reminder, I just mentioned, I recently pre-ordered the Love and Rockets vinyl box set. It does not come with Assorted, which is a bummer. And Assorted has, it's a B-sides and rarities kind of thing. Uh, but it's great. And I had heard maybe 10% of it, 20% of it from i own a lot of love and rockets 12 inches but it's not like mainly b-side i don't know it is b-sides but there's a lot of rarities and outtakes so there's like four or five tracks in there that are unreleased so that was pretty cool skull crusher uh very very mellow quiet sparse lady singer songwriter uh the album's called quiet the room and it's just beautiful i she put on ep three four years ago and i have the vinyl of it and i loved it and i'm gonna buy the vinyl of this that was that was a beautiful record Bonnie Light Horseman, Rolling Golden Holly. I have mentioned them before. This is their second album. Anais Mitchell, I believe, is the woman's name. I can't remember. It's a collaboration with someone else. I can't remember his name. Uh, really good second album. Um, maybe if you like New Modern Wilco, we'll say. Lacing, Without. More Spotify shoegaze. That was a good one. I give that B plus in the Spotify shoegaze genre. Indigo Spark, Hysteria, that was great. Also, um, very mellow, quiet uh, woman singer-songwriter. Very into it. Uh, dry Cleaning, you probably know of them. The album called Stump Work. I don't like dry cleaning as much as everybody else does. I don't like the, the cool spoken word thing about it. I don't know. It's good, and I listen to every album, but I don't love it as much as other people do. Telescopes, uh, English band, been around forever, had a shoegaze phase. This is a noise rock live album called F O W R D R V R S Forward Reverse. Uh, an hour of noise rock live, right up my alley. I enjoyed it. Uh, Big Joni has a new album, punk uh, hybrid, new modern, crazy weird punk dub, kind of like modern version of the Clash. Uh, awesome record, really into it. Back home, it's called Marin Morris. Country singer-songwriter. Uh, she had an album called Humble Quest. I've talked a lot about Marin Morris. There is a Mar Humble Quest in rare form that I think is the outtakes or something. They're different songs, and it was really good. If you like country. If you like new modern lady country. Good stuff. Dreamcast Mo, all lowercase, all one word. New signing to Ghostly International. Sound is like water. Uh, it was good. Poppier and more song-based than most ghostly stuff. Still electronic. A lot of cut-up. Uh, I really liked it. Uh, Will Chef, the main guy in Ockerville River, has a new solo album. It's called Nothing Special, and he's lying. It is something special. It's a beautiful record. I saw Will Chef solo on Rainy Street at South by Southwest in like 2010 because they, he played the Twitter party when all my friends worked at Twitter, and it was awesome. But this is new songs, and they're really good, and I strongly recommend the new Will Chef solo album. I was never a big Ockerville River fan, and some people are like, is it dead? Is he just going to do this? And I'm like, that's fine. I like this better. 
Tyler Childers, uh, can I take my hounds to heaven? Oh, this is this is so weird. Okay, so my friend Bill, uh, I don't think he listens to the podcast, but he he reads the newsletter, and he knows about my my love of new modern alt country, and he recommended this album, and I started listening to. It. I was like, he's right, this is a great modern alt country record. But it turns out it's actually a concept album, and it's three albums in one, in different forms. The first third or so is country, the second third is a little bit more rock, and the third third sounds like Tackhead. Or Gary Clail and the On You sound system, like weird 90s dub drone kind of thing. But I really like it. And I'm like, this guy is, this is a brave release and he's very diverse. And I like most of it. <laughs> so Tyler Childer is very interesting album. Can I take my hounds to heaven? Envy, all lowercase, a Japanese metal band. I listened to their older album, The Fallen Crimson. They're on Sacred Bones. I'd never heard of them, but I got my Sacred Bones marketing email announcing a new album from theirs. And I figured I should learn about the old one. Uh, And I really like it because I love pretty much the Sacred Bones metal style a whole lot. And Envy, I don't know anything about them. Apparently they're legendary, but I'm just learning about them. The Mike Plume Band. Song and dance, man. Kind of milk toast, country rockish. Like, like, um, like. In the Eric Bachman solo vein, I don't remember why I listened to this. Somebody must have recommended it, and it's not bad, but it, it was just a little, a uh, little, little unremarkable for me. I already talked about Babe Hoven uh, and Perla, the place with no weather. Uh, that was really good. She's kind of like a Sharon Van Etten feel. I think it's a band and not a woman, not a soloist. It's a woman singer, but uh, I really liked it. Uh, I want to know more about Perla, P-E-A-R-L-A, not like La Perla, the lingerie company, but it's good. Need to learn more about that one. That's all the albums I listened to in the last three weeks. I really went for it. I was listening to a lot of records. I'm not going to lie. TV. Let's see. We finished Resident Alien. Nothing new there. Finished House of the Dragon. I liked it. It's okay. I'm kind of like questioning why I watch it, but I'll keep doing it. I'm kind of glad it's over because it stresses me out. And uh, But I like the way they're adding ambiguity and nuance to the story, and the acting is phenomenal. So, you know, I'll give it another season. Star Trek Lower Decks is done. Uh, I love that show. Animated half-hour comedy Star Trek. What more could you ask for? Noel Wells is uh, it's so good. It's so good. I really enjoyed this new season. Andor still going. Uh, perhaps the best show on tv right now definitely the best star wars ever made since like empire uh if it wasn't star wars it would be winning all the emmys it is a phenomenal commentary on modern fascism it is so well acted the supporting cast is amazing i cannot recommend it strongly enough we watched the entire first season of Anne rice's interview with the vampire we liked it more than most i'm excited about future seasons the cast is very good i don't like the showrunner i wish they'd swap him out but uh, the direction is great, the writing is great, the acting is great, so I'll keep with it. Uh, great British Bake Off. Oh, there's a new episode out. It's Friday. That's exciting. We'll see what's happening. It's absurd this year, but I'm enjoying it. I don't even know anybody's names. I think we're at the quarterfinals now. Usually I'm like very invested in them by this point, and I have like know all their names and stuff, and now I'm like, I don't care. But I still just love watching it, and it still makes me want to bake, and it's still super fun. Uh, Rick and Morty, we finished that. I think I mentioned that before. The End is Nigh, Bill Nye's science show co-produced with, uh, what's his name that did the Orville, the funny guy, uh, family guy guy, Seth, the other Seth, not McFarlane. McFarlane? I don't know. One of the Seths. (laughs) It's pretty good. It's like a six episode series about, uh, the end of the world and different ways we might have the world end. And I love that they saved the most depressing one for the last episode. That was that was particularly a uh, twist of the knife of them. But, you know, who doesn't love a comedic thing about realistic scenarios for the world ending? Uh, what's next? Oh, The Peripheral. Yeah, this is probably a new episode today of that, too. On Amazon, based on a William Gibson book by the creators of Westworld, the last part of that is the problematic part because they're adding a lot of violence and interpersonal conflict and shit like that that I just don't really care about. Like, there's a big bad in it, and there's no big bad in the book. You know, it's a William Gibson book, right? Like, I mean, some of this you have to do because William Gibson books are so cerebral, and there's not a lot of actual plot. I think that'd be great on the screen, but, I, you know, that's too risky for most people, I guess. But uh, I'll stick with it. Um, it's good enough. It could have been better. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, we watched the Doctor Who <laughs> that was weird. It was so over the top and ridiculous. Doctor Who is so over the top and ridiculous these days, but that was fun. It was a one-off. I guess there's no more Doctor Who for like 
six, seven months. It's like literally one episode season or something. I don't know. It was weird. Uh, Tales of the Jedi. That was that was good, actually. That was six 15-minute-long episodes in the animated style of the Clone Wars, filling in some of the backstory of specifically Ahsoka Tano and Count Dooku, if you care about this shit. Well done. Uh, don't watch it unless you're a Star Wars completist. But if you are, it's worth it. Uh, the Crown. We started that last night. Episode one. Very sad. Very depressing. And, you know, Princess Di is going to die later in this season. Spoiler alert. The world, famous death in the world. But, um, man, yeah, it's just a little depressing. At least people are It's just like, ugh, ugh. I hope it has a little bit of levity in it as, this, as, the, as the, the season goes by. We will see. We will see. Movies. Uh, it says Sting Bring on the Night here, which makes me suddenly worried that you don't know that I've been obsessed with Sting for the last few weeks and months and that I rewatched Sting Bring on the Night and I had long periods of thinking very deeply about Kenny Kirkland, R.I.P. and Branford Marsalis and how he became more famous than the rest of the band and how great Omar Hakim is. I will spare you, but my God, I was very obsessed with early period Sting again recently. I thought I already talked about that, but you're in luck. You didn't get to hear it. Uh, I watched two 70s porn feature films that came out in 4K that I bought the Blu-rays for because I'm just fascinated with this company called Vinegar Syndrome. Uh, and they also re-released the 4K of Cloak and Dagger, which I love and I have rewatched recently. So I bought this amazingly packaged 4K version of Cloak and Dagger. And I was like, I want to support what this company does. And I was very fascinated with these. So I bought them. Uh, one is called Dracula Sucks and one is called Sex World. One is a pornographic 70s Dracula, which is as fantastic as it sounds. And one is about a pornographic amusement park, which is also as fantastic as it sounds. The plot to porn ratio in these is like 50-50, which compared to like American modern porn is, you know, they're what are they, 91 or something? 90-10, I mean, it's even, might even be more like 60-70% plot versus, I mean, it's hardcore porn, don't get me wrong, but it's like, it's a film with a plot, feature length, it's very weird. Uh, yeah, those are entertaining. Uh, I watched Werewolf by Night, the Marvel one-off about a werewolf, it was awesome. Uh, directed by Michael Giacchetto, the composer, he did a fantastic job. I mean, it's very well done. You don't have to care about Marvel at all to watch that. It's just a fun Halloween thing. Although Halloween's over, watch it next year. Uh, and then I watched uh, the Bakshi, Ralph Bakshi, Lord of the Rings, and the Rankin Bass Hobbit, the '70s animated versions of both of those. I thought they were related, but they're not. Two different parties made them. Rankin Bass made The Hobbit and Ralph Bakshi made Lord of the Rings. He did not get all the way through to Return of the King. There is a Return of the King, but it's made by Rankin Bass. They did not. I, I In my childhood head, these were related. And I suspect this is true. A lot of people that were kids back then, but they're not. And in watching them again, I found HD copies. Their, their animation styles are very, very different. It was very interesting. I wrote a lot about it today in my non-political, non-tech daily email <laughs> and uh they're on plex if you would like to watch them uh on the book front i finished faith and carnage the nick cave sean o'hagan interview book i wrote extensively about this uh in the email i don't usually write about what i read in there but it really got me all worked up about nick cave and religion and hypocrisy and some stuff but uh, he came off better than he has of late so i think i can still muster some enthusiasm for nick cave uh, I am deeply jealous of his creative relationship with, uh, what's his name from the Dirty Three, Warren Ellis, even though I don't particularly love all the music they make together. But I am very impressed with his creative discipline and the fact that he has such a fruitful collaborator. That is really, really awesome. Good for him. And of course, you know, the death of his son, surviving that and being productive at all is is amazing. It's amazing. It's really impressive. And his wife, he talks a lot about it, but his wife and son's grief, and oh god, I can't imagine, that stuff is very intense, I would recommend this book, actually, uh, then I read, the reread the appendices to Return of the King, because I, that is the source material for the Amazon show Rings of Power, which I liked very much, but I wanted to refresh myself on it, and uh, it's actually not near as making stuff up as people imply, most of what happens, there's some weirdness about, uh, the order of the rings being forged, but almost everything in the show at least does not conflict with what's in the appendices. So that was an interesting quick reread. And now I'm reading Stephen Morris, the drummer of New Order and Joy Division's second volume of his autobiography. This one is called Fast Forward, Confessions of a Post-Punk Percussionist, Volume 2. I just started it like two nights ago. I'm like five chapters in. I love it. I love the first one. And uh, it is great. 
All right, I think that's about it for the next three weeks. Thank you for listening, and uh, drop a line. Let me know how you're doing. I hope your Thanksgiving is lovely. It's my favorite holiday. I'm very excited, and I will talk to you guys in early December. Take care.